from his album Uprising, song about work. Um, <clears throat> so today, uh, I'm Henry Zucchini, this is Indigo Radio, and today we'll be discussing the LA teacher strike in the LF LA Unified School District in Los Angeles, California. The strike just ended uh, with an agreement that favors, um, is not perfect, but in, by and large favors the teachers as a result of a week-long strike. Um, so before, we have a, a a caller coming calling in at about uh, quarter past noon today, Jessica Lynn, and she's a teacher in the district, and she'll be calling, and we'll be having a conversation about her experience, um, what her experience is like as a teacher there, what the strike was like, why they were on strike, and um, some of the outcomes and, and her feelings about that. So that will be coming up in just a little bit. Um, but before we do that, I thought we would give some background of the LA School District and what's been going a little bit, uh, which what the conditions that drove the strike based on um, research that I've done and, and talking to other people. Um, so just to give a context of what 
LA is like, just uh, the scope of what we're talking about. It's the second largest school district in the country. It houses or, or educates 600,000 students, which just to put that in perspective is the same population of the entire state of Vermont. So that one school district is educating the entire population of Vermont in that school district. There are 30,000 teachers, give or take a few. Um, <clears throat> many of the teachers are part of the United Teachers of Los Angeles Union. And they, the strike happened for a number of reasons. And, so, and some of these will be familiar. Later in the show, we'll talk about some of the conditions that led to other strikes throughout the country. So as people listening might know, there were strikes last year in West Virginia, Oklahoma, and so there have been strikes kind of sweeping the nation, um, at least eight in the last year, year and a half, of, and, and more coming. There's, there's talk of uh, strikes in Oakland. Um, there's one ongoing right now in Denver, which we might touch upon a little bit later. So these are kind of ongoing, ongoing labor disputes. And the question becomes, why are there so many labor disputes at this time? What are the, what are the forces that are driving them? And I would argue that the forces that were driving those other strikes that preceded this L.A. strike are, are similar to what, what happened in LA. Of course, every, every situation's a little bit different and unique, but the, the larger kind of macro forces that were driving those strikes, um, which led to the Red for Ed movement, which is a kind of a nationwide teachers movement to improve conditions for, not just for teachers, of course, but for students, for the actual physical structures of the buildings, for the support staff that work in the schools. Um, there were <coughs> multifold reasons and constituencies involved um, in bringing about these actions. And I would also argue that those conditions apply very much in Vermont, even though right now at our current, the WSCSU, which is our school district, district here in the Brattleboro area, while we have a current contract that still runs for another year and a half, a lot of the issues that are, that are plaguing those schools are issues that we also are faced with or will be facing in the coming years. And so <coughs> we'll see what happens in that case, but there are, there are similarities in, in many school districts throughout the country. Um, so just a little bit of uh, background. Um, some of the reasons pushing this strike um, were enormous class sizes. So in, in the LA school district, you had regular class sizes in middle and high schools, upwards of 30 children, in some cases over 40 children. Now I can speak from my personal experience as a teacher in high school that our, our large class sizes at Brattleboro High School are about the mid-20s, 24 to 26 students. And when you have a class that large, it's often very difficult to teach that many students because the, we have students coming with so many disparate needs that it's hard for one person. And we have no, generally in the high school, there's only one teacher in the class and we don't have any support staff with us or, or other special educators or other people that are helping paraeducators. Now because of the new, new funding cuts a new model, we basically have an inclusion system, which means we include all students in the classroom, but no support staff other than the teacher. So 24 kids in a class is, it's not untenable, but it's very, very challenging for most teachers to, to really effectively reach every single one of those students with all the diverse learning needs that they bring into the classroom, not to mention the, the needs they bring in from um, resources they might not be getting at home or other issues that they have um, uh, as far as if they have a disability or other things they might be um, facing in their lives. So uh, it's very challenging. And then, so then for me to imagine a class size that's 15 to 20 kids larger than that uh, with just one teacher in the class doesn't even really make sense. So the LA teachers are pushing back against class sizes being outrageous. Um, and they were also pushing, pushing back on the idea of a lack of critical staff. So you have a situation in LA schools where um, many schools had no nurses, uh, they had too few or no counselors at school, and so 
sick children were being handled or dealt with with staff that weren't trained to really deal with or handle sick sick students. Um, oftentimes, the staff, when they are there, are treating kids under stairwells and closets because the nurses don't actually have space to work in. And so they're pushing back against that. They're pushing back against um, the cost, the wages that they're getting. Um, school one study showed that from between 1992 and 2014 california teachers salaries increased six percent uh, after adjusting for inflation so the cost of living is going up uh, enormously and and wages are basically stagnant which is similar across the country for for non-supervisory wages um and this is something that teachers and other workers share with each other um in that district, 80% of the students are living in poverty or close to poverty. So basically you have a similar situation to here at Academy School, which is right down the road here. It's the main sending school to Brattleboro High School. We have a 67 to 70% thereabouts uh, free reduced lunch rate, which puts essentially kids in poverty. So the, the vast majority of the students at BOHS families are struggling, and it's a little bit higher in L.A. still. 80% are um, on uh, free reduced lunch and essentially living in poverty or close to it. Um, Seventy-three percent of the students in those districts are um, Hispanic or Latino. The other, another fifteen percent are other people of color, um, Asian Americans, Black Americans, and then a small percentage of white students uh, are the fill up the remainder of the the demographics there. Um, one of the other things that's really driving this conversation, I'm hoping to talk to Jessica in a few minutes about this, uh, was the growth of charter schools. Charter schools, for those of you who don't know, are generally publicly funded schools that are privately run. So there's there's often a profit motive involved in the in the charter schools and the, the school rules that apply to public schools, the, the, the state laws that apply and local laws that apply to public schools are often withdrawn from charter schools. So they have some so-called so independence. Charter schools are also by and large um, non-unionized shops, so meaning they don't allow or have teacher unions. Um, so we're going to get at that. Uh, Jessica's calling right now, so I'm going to put on a quick song, um, and then we're going to get back to interviewing Jessica Lynn from the Unified School District in L.A. Now I am the violence, I am the sin. 
song called Grandson, um, or a band called Grandson, a song called Blood in the Water. It seemed appropriate for today's topic. Um, we'll be in a minute speaking with um, Jessica Lynn. She's a teacher with the Unified School District in LA, and um, this is Indigo Radio, and you listen to 107.7 WVEW FM in Brattleboro, Vermont, and I'm going to try to get Jessica on here. Let me pull her up and see if she's there. Jessica, you there? Hello. Hi. Oh, great. Yeah, we can hear you loud and clear. Okay, well, thanks for joining awesome. us today. Um, as you probably know, the show we're doing today is about um, the L.A. teacher strike, and then more broadly, um, once we say goodbye to you, we'll also touch upon how these strikes connect to um, labor in the United States and then, and then apply it a little bit to the lens of Vermont and what's going on with teachers um, and teaching in Vermont. But I just want to ask you a little bit about your background. Could you describe, before we get into the strike, uh, what your job is and what you teach, how long you've been teaching in the district? Yeah, so I am a chemistry and environmental science teacher. This is my second year in uh, Los Angeles Unified School District, so still getting used to the hang of things how with the big class sizes and the whole mess and striking as a second-year teacher. Um, yeah, but I love it. It's tough. It's a lot of work, but um, I can't imagine doing anything else. And um, did you teach anywhere before, or are you a second-year teacher? Were you in another district somewhere else, or is this your second year as a classroom teacher? Oh, this is my second year as a classroom teacher. Okay, so you're fairly new to the, um, new to the profession. Yes. Okay, and how large, um, where, what school do you, I assume you're teaching at a public school, not a private school in the district? Or? Yes, okay. I, correct. And, I and, teach at Cleveland High School. It's, it's a Title I school here in um, LAUSD. My class sizes, my average class size is, I think, pushing 39. I have two classes of 41 kids. Um, my classroom is actually a bungalow, not a chemistry classroom. So it's a small bungalow with one small sink that gives out grainy water. And four, I have four outlets, no fume hood. And, yeah, that's how I teach chemistry. Wow, I, I'm all. I, before we get into the strike, I'm, I'm often curious because I was saying before you got on that I teach at Brattleboro High School locally here. Um, we have a colleague that's a, a mutual friend um, that you know, and and our class size mm-hmm. when we get to our big class size, it puts us like 25, 26. And with the diverse student, <laughs> the diverse student needs that we have, I find that I can I cannot really effectively do that as a teacher because there's so we have such. Uh, you know, deep levels of impoverishment in Brattleboro and a lot of opioid crisis going on and family, families in crisis, generally lack of resources. And so the kids come in with all sorts of, um, you know, emotional and learning difficulties that, that precede even my ever interacting with them. And I find it very challenging to, to meet 25 students' needs. How is it possible to meet 40 students' needs in one classroom? Oh, it is so, so, so difficult. Um, yeah, so one of the 
classes that I teach is English language learners. So most of my students in the class only immigrated within the past two, three years. So um, on top of trying, they're try, basically trying to t learn chemistry in a second language. For some of them, it's their third language. And I have a mix of students who speak Spanish, Vietnamese, Punjabi, Farsi, Tagalog, um, all around that class. And yeah, it is so difficult, um, not only because chemistry has these big, broad vocabulary terms, but helping them one-on-one. -on -one. And not only that, I find a huge difficulty that I experience is trying to create a sense of community and getting these students to know each other in the classroom um, because it's just so big. And one-on-one, yeah, on one, um, I know I basically have to do every waking moment that I have in the kids, whether it's passing period in between transitioning, I do all I can to get to know these kids individually. Yeah. Um, but it is difficult given the class size. And I'm definitely, as much as I do my best to um, get to know my kids at an individual level, um, there's only so much I can do in a 57-minute period with 41 kids. And how many students do you have in total? So you're, you're in a period schedule. Your periods are 57 minutes long. How many, how many periods do you teach in a day? Yeah, so there's six periods total, but I have a prep, so I have five classes. Five, okay. So five times 40 kids thereabouts, or...? Yeah. Okay. A little, maybe it's like, a, maybe it's around 189, 190, I think it's my exact number. Okay. But close to 200. Students. Yes. Yeah. And how, <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but I don't, I don't like, I don't understand how that, how do you both prep in a, you have a 57 minute prep, I assume. Mm -hmm. how, how do you prep and grade um, 200 students in, um, and just to, once again, for the audience to put in perspective, I had 80 students this last semester, and I was working every night at home, unpaid labor, by the way. I was working at home every night, probably two to three hours a night. So I was working a 60-hour week because I couldn't possibly grade for 80 kids, grade all those papers, how, or, or grade, period. How do, how do you do that? Are you spending most of your time grading at home? Oh, yeah. This is, this is my life, um, I feel like. So um, as we're talking right now, I am actually – so. Another thing where I guess we're going to talk about later is um, pay is I actually tutor on the side and I basically live at coffee shops. I'm actually in my car right now because I just finished tutoring um, a kid this morning at Starbucks and I came to my car for the interview and I still have a ton of papers with me to grade and I'm probably just going to sit back and just power through all of it. Yeah. So, um, so the largely untold story about wages for teachers is that people, even locally here, might think, oh, well, for example, I get paid $50,000. That's my wage. And people around, for, around here, that's a decent paying job, although I'll get into that label how that's not a decent paying job. But let's just assume for now that it is. And But the reality is that's not my real wage because I'm working 15, 20 hours a week that are that's not pay, that I'm not paid for. So my wage is really maybe, let's say, $30,000. And I'm imagining it's the same in your case. It sounds like you have, many teachers have to take second jobs just to make ends meet. Yes. Definitely. Right. Um, and a quote that I heard from a colleague that's completely true is that teaching is the, is the only profession where you steal from home to bring to work. So a lot of times I'll find like papers, binders, or even things to use for chemistry, um, whatever I can at home, things I can find in my kitchen and use that to have chemistry um, activities in my class because, um, so because of the lack of resources here. So it's not only that you're working more, you're actually having, you're having to pay for supplies to bring to the classroom as well. 
Yes. Yeah. I think that's something that people often overlook um, when it comes to being a teacher. So a lot of the classroom supplies that people t- take for granted or assume are a part of a classroom, um, a lot of times teachers provide those. Yeah. Just to give the audience an update, this is um, WVEW 107.7 FM, your community radio station. This is Indigo Radio. We're streaming every Sunday at noon. And today we're talking to Jessica Lynn and more broadly about the L.A. teacher strike that just came to an end. And so we've been interviewing Jessica. She's a, a second-year teacher in the L.A. Unified School District. And so we're just kind of getting an update from her about her teaching life and about um, conditions for teachers that, that led to the strike. So could you talk about... Um, now that uh, you've already given some sense of that, but what what are some of the conditions that led the teachers to um, call this massive strike action? Okay, so um, so to give a kind of overview, so in, back in 2008 when there was a recession, LAUSD made major, major, major cuts to um, everything, to school funding for smaller class sizes, for counselors, for nurses, um, pay raise, all of those things. Um, for the contract that was negotiated back then. And LUSD basically told the union, hey, we need some time because of the recession. We promise we'll give back, we'll lower the class sizes back to what they used to be. We'll give you the pay raise that you guys need um, due to inflation and all those things after recession. So um, I think our union agreed back in 2008 to those demands, but it's been 10 years since then. And um, our classes, class sizes are still huge. Um, teachers haven't had a pay raise in, I think, in almost 10 years. And with inflation, um, yeah, teachers are making less every year because if we don't get a raise, that even matches inflation. Right. And uh, I know 80%, I think more than 80% of schools in LAUSD um, didn't have full-time school nurses. Most of, yeah. most of my colleagues at different schools um, their their nurse's office was the front, like just the front office if they needed a Band-Aid or an ice pack. Right. And uh, that was it. And I know the counselor to student ratio on average at LUC was 750 to 1. Um, wow. Which um, I would say in L.A. there are a lot of students who, um, who need that adult support um something even though this is only my second year teaching one thing that i've noticed about being a teacher is when the students don't have that adult support outside of school whether through their parents it's up to teachers to the support staff like we become the parent slash counselor slash psychologist whatever for these kids and when i'm when you give me 200 kids um i can't do the best that i can to be that supportive model for each of them. Right. I often describe my job increasingly as a teacher. I was trained to be a teacher, but I really should have been trained all as a special educator and also as a as a, so, uh, a social worker because largely my job has evolved from away from teaching and into because of how broken our society is. Um, it's evolved because the kids, like you said, are not getting support at home. Support at home. I, I really should be trained as a special educator, which I'm not, and should be trained as a, a social worker, which I'm not. And so it's, it's interesting that you say that because I think those same issues apply in Vermont as well. Yeah, I totally agree because I think something people don't realize as a teacher um, is we see these kids, a lot of these kids often more, more, of the day than their parents do at home if their parents are working full-time 
Um, I have some students who I talk to who I know their parents are going through a divorce or parents in the hospital, and they don't have an adult to just de-load and de-stress all the things that they're trying to balance with. Just being a high school student, um, the stress and drama, the social life, the academics, and um, yeah, so it's something that I think is so important as that I wish society would realize that teachers play a really important part in I think the socio-emotional growth of these kids. And, um, yeah, and I wish as teachers we had more support because I feel like I was thrown to the deep end of the pool of how do I how do I talk to a child about their dad who's um, in the hospital with cancer and we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. Right. Yeah, and, uh, and that's, a, that's kind of a larger question question as far as how you know the breakdown of society and then what what teachers are asked to do because the kids are under so under resourced both from a personal and and a monetary point of view that they're often they're often coming to us in, in a crisis or and, and then as you said adding on to it just being a, a teenager in the society can be challenging with social media pressures and other pressures they're getting just from just in the transition of their lives from young people to adults that that in of itself is challenging and then adding all these other stressors is, is pretty pretty intense what were some of the um what about um charter schools did you did you do you have any feelings about that i want to talk about that later um after you and i close i'm going to bring that up and, and get into a bit of the charter school thing because i think it ties into larger kind of societal issues as to who who owns these schools and who's benefiting but do you have an opinion or or a s- sense of how charter schools played a role in, in pushing the strike forward yeah definitely so i personally actually went to a charter school for high school um, back then, I wasn't exactly sure about the politics behind it, but now I have a clear sense of um, the effect that charter schools have on public education and society as a whole. So um, for people who don't know, charter schools are schools that are publicly funded but privately run, um, which means that the people who run charter schools, they, as of now, they do not have a lot of accountability for how they use their funds. So, for example, the school that I went to, um, Granada Hills Charter High School, we're, um, they're known for their academic decathlon team. Um, nationwide, they win seven, eight years um, in a row. Um, reason being, I feel like a huge part of it is those, t- those kids, those nine kids that are allowed to be on the team, they're allowed to skip all their classes every day just to <laughs> study for the academic decathlon. Wow. Our, that school... Um, they spend more money on those nine kids, that team, than the entire English department. And that, this is a school of 4,000 kids. Um, and then also in our area, there's another charter school where the superintendent, or I, don't, I forgot his role, the principal, the person in charge, he had to step down because they found out he spent over $100,000 going to golf clubs and restaurants um, trying to get investors. And um, so I think when of my biggest concerns about charter schools is that they are that their main goal is for profit not necessarily for education so um example another so charter schools have been popping up all across los angeles and there are actually a um, small campus of accelerated charter schools here in la that are still on strike um reason being they have a 40 percent teacher turnover rate and um in the eyes of charter schools having a high teacher turnover rate can be seen as a good thing because they can keep their the amount that they can pay the teachers low, is low because yeah. they just keep recycling these new teachers that they can pay barely anything um and yeah for 
long term, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of consequences to that that um, I won't get into here. Yeah. But it's just it's and uh, something that's been happening a lot also in LAUSD is um, co-locations. So charters have been able to share the same campus as public schools slowly put, while slowly pushing them out. Mm-hmm. And another problem that we've seen, I know at my school and my friend's schools here in LAUSD, is that after, so charter schools, they can also kind of cherry-pick their kids and right, slightly right. nudge other kids out. So, yeah. um, And the thing that most people don't realize about that is a lot of charter schools in this area, what they do is after this day called Norm Day, which is two or three weeks in the school year, they'll push their kids out of their charter schools into the public schools, mm-hmm. but the charter schools will still get the funding for that student, uh-huh. even though that student is no longer a part of that school. Right. That's the, that's one of the many arguments leveled at the charter school movement is that they cherry pick the students, um, and particularly they target, um, you know, um, typically marginalized groups in the United States. They target, they cherry pick the stronger students and then the public schools, not only are they getting less funding because of these charter schools, because they're also getting, the charter schools get these cherry picked students and they're like, oh look, our test scores are better, so therefore charter schools are working better than public schools. That's that's one of the tricks that they play. Yes, it's a vicious, vicious, vicious cycle. So um, LAUSD, our current superintendent, Austin Butner, he's not an educator, he's a businessman. His record is trying to create charter schools um, across the states, and he was actually brought in um, by board members to try to have this charter agenda for LAUSD. So I feel like right now that is the biggest fight that's happening um, here is charter schools versus public education. Right, and there, from what I read, um, there's now 224 charter schools in LA, which is more than any other school district in the country. So they've, over the last few decades, they've really succeeded in pushing these heavily. And then the school board, the election for the school board, there was a big fight because um, there was huge funding, like something like $14 million poured in during the last school board election because the charter school advocates are pushing so hard to get pro charter school uh, members on the school board. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So right now, one board member recently resigned because he- He was found to have done a lot of sketchy stuff, Um, and it is a new board member spot on the line. And it's a and that this I think this vote is coming in within the next month or so. Uh Um, This is a really big one because it's just trying to see if the person who takes that role is are they going to be pro public education or pro charter. Okay, so um, just to give the audience update, we'll, we'll spend a few more minutes, Jessica, if, if you've got a minute. But um, we're speaking, mm-hmm. this is WVWLP, Brattleboro 107.7, your community radio station. This is Indigo Radio, streaming live most Sundays at noon. And we're speaking to Jessica Lynn today. She's a teacher in the LA Unified School District um, and was a member of a team of teachers, a massive team of teachers, 30,000 thereabouts, that struck um, a week ago. And uh, I was wondering, Jessica, if you could talk about maybe the resolution of the strike, um, kind of what, because by and large it was viewed as at least a partial success, and what those successes were, maybe what some of your concerns are um, going forward. Yeah, definitely. So there are a lot of huge successes. So one big one, it got rid of one section 1.5, which allowed LAUSD to make um, class sizes as big as they want, as they felt they needed. So they, so I feel personally, I feel like that was the biggest success Um, because right now I have colleagues whose um, English classes are 55, which is absolutely ridiculous. 55 Um, students? Yeah, 55 students. 
in one class. With no, just them um, and 55 kids? No other support staff? Yes. Yes. Wow. I wish I was exaggerating, but I'm really not. That is, I don't even um, know what to say about that, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was a big one. Um, they are giving school nurses for every LUSD school. And year by year, they're decreasing the cap. And year by year, they're increasing the pace slowly by slowly. Um, slowly. Yeah, slowly and slowly. And I believe I believe they're reducing the counselor-to-student ratio to 500 to 1 as well. Um, Which is still ridiculous, yeah, but so at least it's better. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's still ridiculous, but I think it's a step in the right direction right, for sure. Right. Um, yeah, and some concerns about, of course, with negotiations, you give and take. Right. So one thing was um, school, the class sizes, the caps, mostly help secondary schools. Mm-hmm. A lot of elementary schools, their class sizes can still be, I think their cap is at 28 or 29, which it's is still really, really difficult. Big for, for elementary, um, yeah. That's really big. Yeah, for yeah. elementary schools. Yeah. Um, school psychologists are, still have a huge, huge, huge caseloads. Um, the first year of class size reductions only apply to math and English teachers. So for me as a science teacher, history teachers, elective teachers, we still have big class sizes. Um, yes, and these contracts, they're renewed every three years. So right. after these three years are up, which is really soon, um, yeah. we don't know if the board, if LUSD wants to um, step away from all of this. Right, so it's every every few years, and it's the same with our contract. We we negotiate every three years too, so you just know, you mm-hmm. never know the makeup of the board could change, and so yeah. And they put a, some yeah. at least some resolution being passed about limiting charter schools, but there was some debate about whether that had any teeth or not. Did you catch any of that as far as the charter school? Oh yes. Yeah. So they created a board or a group um, made of people from LEC and UTLA to discuss charter caps. So a part of the negotiation. A part of where people have um, concerns about that is nothing is really set in stone concrete about a clear charter cap. It's just a a board that was made to um, try to reduce charter caps. So um, it can it can work really well. It can not work either. But Mm -hmm. um, only time will tell with that. Okay. well, thanks so much. It sounds like you need some time to get back to grading which is just i'm gonna try to wrap my head around um the nature of your job because it seems it's really hard to believe i know there's probably people listening who aren't educators who don't have a maybe a firm grasp on that looks like but the idea of having a 200 student load um i like as i said i had an 80 student load this past semester and i found it almost untenable as you know working every single night of the week pretty much and you're talking about a 200 student load and then still having a second job on top of that which i don't have so that's it just i mean thank you so much for the work you're doing and i'm sorry it's under such adverse conditions oh yeah but i and one last thing i want to say sure, is, go ahead, yeah. um i know it's as an, for anyone out there who's thinking of being an educator, I don't want to sound like, oh, this job is the worst. There's a lot of things that suck. But right. I want to say there's so many rewarding things that make this job so, so, so worth it. So, for example, one of my students, so uh, just to tell, small, tell a really small story, um, the past couple of weeks, he's always come six period with a bunch of cafeteria food. And I thought he just brought it home. So I was like, okay, that's yeah. totally Okay, and then one day he comes in with a bunch of milk cartons. So I just asked him, like, Christopher, like, why do you have so much milk? And his friend tells me, oh, Christopher, he bikes and brings it to the homeless people after school. Wow. Um, and 
like when you get to know these students and their hearts um and by the way the background of all these a lot of my students um some of them don't have any parent support at all yeah there a lot of them most of my students are going to be the first ones in their families to go to college yeah. um and the being an educator dealing with all this mess it's so worth it knowing that you can support these kids um in making the world a better place and yeah. Honestly, that's why I think I stick with LAUSD because I love these kids. I want to see them um, change their world, and I want to do all I can to help them do whatever they're going to do to do that in the future. I'm so glad you said that because we were talking a lot of, about a lot of challenging things, but I, I completely agree. I feel like teaching as a profession, even with all the stuff that's thrown at us, is such an important thing, and, and I, I think it's d- a deeply humanizing experience because we come in, you know, we're coming in and, and really trying to establish a, you know, a, a kind of a, a, a profound relationship with our students if we're doing our jobs well, and it, it is very deeply moving for us and for the kids when that when those connections happen. And, and uh, I'm, thank you for mentioning that because that is that's what keeps me going, and most teachers going that I know of so definitely yeah well thanks so much Jessica for your time I'm glad that this you guys set a model for the country I don't know if you know that but many teachers are looking to you around the country and saying you know all right good on you that it shows the strikes still work that there's power in numbers there's power in unions to push back and so it's it's really it's really heartening to hear your story and uh and the work you guys have been doing yeah thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it okay thanks have have a great day you too okay bye-bye All right, well, that was Jessica Lynn from the L.A. Unified School District talking about the recent strike action they took um, in L.A. Uh, We're going to go away to a song um, by Tracy Tracy Chapman called Talking About a Revolution, and we'll be back on the other side to discuss more about education and strikes and all those other good things. So we'll be back in just a minute. Don't you know We're talking about a revolution Sounds Don't you know We're talking about a revolution Sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around Gonna rise up and get there, yeah. Poor people gonna rise up and take what's there. Don't you know you better run, 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 But a revolution It's finally the tables are starting to turn Talking about a revolution Oh no Talking about a revolution Oh while they're standing in the welfare lines Crying to those of the armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around 
I also love that song. That's uh, Tracy Chapman talking about a revolution. I was in a maybe 15, 16 when that came out. I didn't really know what she was talking about. I just loved the song and the way it sounded, but um, very appropriate to our subject that we're t- speaking of today, which is schools, strikes, charter schools, um, really related to broader issues of equality, wealth, wealth inequality, um, capitalism. So we just heard to, from Jessica Lynn, who is a teacher in the LA Unified School District. For those of you who have not been following the news um, closely, they just struck uh, this past week and they, they basically won. They had uh, 30,000 teachers on strike in a 600,000 pupil school district, which is um, LA school district, the second largest in the country. Um, as we discussed earlier, 600,000 students is the population of the entire state of Vermont. And they went on strike and they won. They didn't win everything they wanted, but they, they won They won a bunch of concessions. And so um, it's kind of a hopeful story in, in the midst of all this insanity that they were able to push back against uh, the madness and, and succeed to some degree. Because um, Jessica and I were talking about a lot of different things, I want to delve a little bit more deeply into the kind of the macro issues around charter schools so that we can kind of get a sense of what they are. Just to repeat again to folks who don't know what those are, because uh, to educators it's kind of, second nature to talk about these things and think about these things but and in Vermont it's they're not as common so there may be listeners who've never heard of them because they're not as common here as they are uh, around the country but just to just to be clear charter schools are um, privately run schools often for profit that are um, using public funds um, to run essentially and there's been a huge push both within the Democratic and Republican parties to make this uh, a, a burgeoning reality so you have leaders in both parties pushing for this which makes sense given their those two parties political role which is really to grease the wheels of capital in this country and so they're they're doing the bidding of um, of their masters to some degree. Um, and I would argue that charter schools are really, they're really a weapon against unions. Um, they're a weapon against public schools. Um, you know, in the United States, we have a country with insane levels of wealth, um, but then we also have the corresponding rampant poverty and wealth inequality. Half of our public school students are living in poverty. So it just gives you a sense of all the public school students who live in the United States, half of them are in poverty. And I, when I say that to my students, I teach economics at the high school, and I say that to my students and I let it sink in, for many of them it's, it's shocking because we see all around us and on TV and social media all the wealth that, that we have, and it's true. The United States is a very wealthy country, but that wealth is in no way going evenly between the workers and the owners. It's very much heavily weighted towards the owners, of course, as is typical in a capitalist economic system. And so when they hear that, half of public school students are living in poverty, it's quite shocking to them, but the reality is, is that it's in this community of Brattleboro. As I said, um, Academy School, which is the largest sending school, it's an elementary school, and, and half of our students graduate from Academy School who come to BOHS, the high school. Um, 67 plus percent are living in poverty, essentially. So this is not a problem that's that's a a national problem only. It's a, it's a very local problem. And there are many, many schools in Vermont where that's the case. I would argue the majority of schools in Vermont, at least in the larger districts, have massive issues with kids coming to school in families that are struggling and, and severely under-resourced. Uh, um, so <clears throat> what they do as far as, the, it's, a, it's a classic kind of neoliberal scheme or capitalist scheme. You set up conditions um, via capitalism where the society kind of breaks down, which is kind of the period we're at now as far as who owns what. So the system is kind of breaking down. And then you prescribe the very system that caused the, the kind of crisis and the unraveling of society. You prescribe more of that to fix it. And so the fix for the situation we're in where the very few have everything and everyone else has nothing or next to nothing, the fix for that is to privatize more 
more things. And so ignoring for the first part that what's led to this complete insanity of, of um, uh, socioeconomic system that we have now is to actually give more privatization. It's the classic kind of Naomi Klein wrote about it. Um, many authors have talked about you get you you develop a crisis and in that crisis what you do is you take advantage of it and so then you say well the reason the schools are broken is because um, is because uh, they're not doing well you don't blame the system for why the schools are broken you don't blame the fact that that all these kids are coming into school with um, from families that are struggling don't have resources parents are working two jobs you don't talk about that you just blame the schools and you say well this is how you're going to fix it what you're going to do is privatize the schools so you can make a profit off of them and then students will have parents will have school choice you'll hear that a lot used in the, the charter school arguments the parents are given choice and so it's the illusion uh, once again the illusion of competition which as we know is non-existent largely in capitalism it's an oligopolistic a monopolistic economic system we have at almost all levels other than maybe the local level to some degree but you have a an oligopolistic monopolistic system that dominates um, the society and so you tell parents oh you've got a choice in your schools and so that sounds good to people. Well I, well, I would like a choice in my schools. My, my local public school isn't, isn't working. It's underfunded. It's broken. The kids are, kids are struggling. There's not enough teachers, not enough supplies. Oh yeah, a charter school sounds really good. And so without, unwittingly, oftentimes parents are, are playing into this and you can't blame them because if you were a parent choosing between underfunded, dilapidated public school or the shiny new private school uh, or quasi-private school, publicly funded private school, you would choose that too. And so what they do is they say, okay, well, what, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to make it privatized. We're going to make sure that unions can exist there so teachers can advocate for themselves and for students. And so they'll weaken, they'll weaken the workers, which is, I think, really the undergirding of all of this is to is not only the profit motive, which of course is, is kind of the, the defining logic of capitalism, but it's also at, at every turn to undermine workers and collective engagement with the world and so by saying to, to charter schools um, you can't union in charter schools you can't unionize it's the key there that's kind of the linchpin of the whole thing making sure that the staff are, are, are low on a lower pay grade uh, therefore increasing profits for the school and making sure that they can't unionize to, to up their pay grade it is kind of heartening to know that in the LA district many of the charter school teachers who are not unionized joined the union in the strike last week and as Jessica said some of them are still on strike some of those charter school teachers are still on strike because they're being treated so badly in the schools and they have such high turnover um, the other tactic the charter schools use as she discussed is they they cherry pick the students from marginalized communities, often student um, communities of color, and they they pick the cherry pick the students that are that are strong, and they take the students that are struggling or or can't get higher grades in the test, and they leave them in the public schools or, or students that have IEPs or 504s, and so they cherry pick who they get, and then they say, well, look at this, our schools are outperforming the public schools, you know, and so the whole backstory of what's happening. Um, is not really told. It's told very much in a vacuum, so people can't see the the larger picture of what's going on. It's very much a it's a mythological presentation, which is largely what what this country runs on is kind of mythological presentations of of, of reality. But just a, just for as an example, uh, this year in Boston, uh, Boston slated to receive two hundred and twenty million dollars, uh, the city of Boston, in state education aid. Of that, 167 million will cover charter school tuition for 10,000 students, and that means that leaves only 50 million for 55,000 students in the city's public school system. So once again, just just think about that. And this is just two hours down the road to give you a sense of what's going on in in, in the school systems. 167 million for 10,000 students, and 50 million for 55,000 students. So that really, in a synopsis, kind of kind of. Um, 
lays out what's really going on with the charter schools. It's a massive wealth shift away from public schools, away from unionized public schools, um, away from those into privatized schools to benefit those schools and to make a profit off them and to destabilize the workers um, and the students in the public schools. And Boston's a great example because they've had huge increases in, in development. If you've been to Boston lately, the whole South Shore of the city is being developed with brand new high rises and condos. And the schools are struggling mightily. They're struggling mightily. They're vastly underfunded. And so, once again, it's the classic reality of capitalism playing out in real time where the few are benefiting and the rest are left with a with a the proverbial poop sandwich. Anyway, we're going to go to another quick song. This is by Bruce Springsteen. Uh, this song is called Death to My Hometown, and it's appropriate to what we're talking about today. We'll wrap up in a few minutes um, discussing some of these things just quickly about how they might relate to what's happening in Vermont and education and apply it to some uh, local lens to, to what's going on here in Vermont. So hang with me. You're listening to WVEW 107.7 FM. This is Indigo Radio. We radio we stream every Sunday at noon from noon to one and we're usually talking about education or social justice type themed issues. And so here's uh, Bruce Springsteen from uh, his album Wrecking Ball. This is called Death to My Hometown. That's Bruce Springsteen, Death to My Hometown. I like that song a lot because it kind of speaks to the mythology of America and how uh, communities are being eviscerated from the inside, but there's no actual bombs exploding. There's no people coming in and, and no dictator is crowned. He says, I like that. He's, saying, he's talking about how the destruction's happening before our eyes and, and uh, the wealthy stealing and taking from the few. And so I think that's a ap apropos of what we're talking about today. I'm going to play a short underwriter clip and then we'll be back in just a minute. 
Wednesday's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. Hello, welcome uh, welcome back to everyone. This is uh, Henry Zucchini. I'm speaking to you from WVEWLP in Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and the guests and not the radio station. And we are today speaking about, this is Indigo Radio, by the way, every noon, every Sunday at noon, we're streaming here and um, broadcasting live. Uh, we're talking today about education, the LA teacher strike, and um, more broadly about capitalism and how it works in, in our communities and in our schools and what the effects it has on uh, populations throughout the country. So um, just to finish up, uh, I like the fact that if you didn't catch the interview earlier, Jessica mentioned that the crisis began in the LA school district uh, 10 years ago during the last recession. And of course, for those of you who follow the news or that, that story, that recession was directly caused by the large banks uh, profiting off of and speculating about using, giving loans to people who didn't, who couldn't afford them and then bundling those things up and selling them and selling insurance products on those loans and then gambling on the loans. And in the end, what happened as a result of that crash it destroyed millions of people's lives across the United States. What did they get but a tr trillions and trillions of dollars of bailouts? So that kind of is instructive. And I think it's, it's appropriate that that was the, the thing that led to the, the worsening of condition, conditions for LA, for LA teachers. And so you have a system, a capitalist economic system, which preyed upon the masses and took advantage of them as far as uh, predatory lending practices and, and adjustable rate mortgages where people couldn't afford their homes, and that that was the thing that precipitated uh, the, the declining um, fortunes of LA public schools because the school board said, oh, because of the recession, we can't, we can't afford to pay you anymore. And so once again, out of crisis comes these things, comes, comes the ability to destabilize communities and ideally make a profit off of and privatize whatever you can. Uh, there's a great quote from... Uh, Dr. Sam Anderson, he's a longtime uh, anti-charter school advocate. I just wanted to read, read this to you. He says, um, privatization, whether of prisons, healthcare, social security, or education, has been shown to be a pro-business gimmick that is against the broader public interest. And I think that's a fairly apt um, um, summary of what's going on here. What about Vermont, though? We just have a minute or two left. Are these things things we should worry about in Vermont education? And I would argue that even though the charter school pressures aren't here as they are in other states, most of the other pressures are. In other words, students are coming to class uh, into schools with deep, deep needs because of the, the breakdown of larger society. In other words, families having to work two or three jobs, the opioid crisis affecting families because they don't have access to resources and, and families become desperate in these, in these conditions where there aren't um, decent paying jobs. And all this can be masked, of course, by Vermont's tourist economy. Oh, look at this, isn't it nice? All the people with their SUVs coming in to go skiing. Isn't, doesn't this make us all happy? And look at the beautiful trees. And while that is 
skiing is lovely and uh, trees are lovely. It, it really masks what, what the true reality of, of most Vermonters is, which is, which is in many cases uh, a condition of struggle and just trying to make ends meet. So we, we, yes, we deal with those students on a day-to-day basis in our classrooms. There are anticipated in our district huge cuts in special, special ed funding looming within the next year or two. I've heard as much as $2 million will be cut from our district's uh, special ed budget, which coming from uh, my experience as a teacher is, the, is actually interesting because what we need is more special ed funding, not less, and we'll have a $2 million cut. And then, of course, the, the issue of health care. Our health care, um, along with many workers' health care, is continually declining where the, while the costs go up. And why is that? It's because we have a privatized health care system. And so because of this for-profit privatized health care system, we all end up paying the salaries and the, for the CEOs of the big pharma and the big insurance companies. And so we're left holding the bag. And so, and so local districts and local teachers end up fighting about the peanuts that are left to us and struggling to make ends meet. And so those issues, we didn't talk about it for LA, but it's the same thing there. They're struggling also to meet the, the needs of their teachers as far as benefits they get because healthcare is so expensive uh, in this country. And so talking about public healthcare is, of course, among both political parties is anathema, but that's, that's generally speaking. And that's, that's also putting tremendous pressure on, on educators' um, um, benefits and, and, and local school districts to try to fund these education um, the benefits for educators. Anyway, we're just about run out of time. Thank you for joining us. It felt a little bit rushed, but we had a lot of good things to talk about. And we'll hopefully see you next week at the same time, same bat channel at 12 noon. And thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. It's the perfect prescription with your host, Cole. That's me, coming to you each Saturday from 2 to 4 p.m. on your community radio station, WVE.